imaginatively dressed up Lauren Green in TV's Battlestar Galactica and artfully dressed down Brooke Shields in the cult classic film The Blue Lagoon. But Quantum Leap fans will best remember costume designer Jean-Pierre Dorliac for giving their favorite show its most iconic image, and for giving their favorite hologram his flamboyant style. In our post-Mad Men nostalgia-driven media culture, it's hard to remember a time when costumes weren't so much wistful distractions to be blogged about as they were tools to transport viewers into another time and place. And when it comes to embodying eras gone by, Don Draper ain't got nothing on Sam Beckett. And that's thanks to Dorliac. In his series-long tenure as costume designer for Quantum Leap, Dorliac had one of the most important jobs on the show. When Sam leapt into a new time and place, his first clue as to who and where he was was often his outfit. It was a crucial visual shorthand for both the character and the viewers, one that required Dorliac to reliably recreate four decades' worth of fashions. He rose to the challenge brilliantly. Whether tracking a dropper named Clapper as noirish Nick Allen in Play It Again, Seymour, fighting sexism as a stylishly dressed Samantha Stormer in What Price, Gloria, or romancing on the high seas as wealthy playboy Philip Dumont in Seabride, Sam convincingly inhabited any era a story required. And Dorliac made it look so natural and effortless that he was nominated for four Emmys for his work on Quantum Leap, including for the aforementioned Seabride. In fact, his QL period costuming was so effective that it is now studied in university classes. But not only did Dorliac have to faithfully recreate the past, he also had to give viewers a glimpse of the future. And his fashion choices have given Quantum Leap its signature genre style. The designer's futuristic flourishes take front and center in the show's very first scenes. Al's neon star lapel pin and matching shoe appliques are prominently featured in the tees for Genesis, as are Tina's LED high heels and earrings. And while we're still grinning over this retro future chic, Dorliac hits us with Quantum Leap's most iconic image, Sam in his clean white Fermi suit, arms outstretched, being buffeted by quantum energy in the accelerator chamber as he prepares for his first leap. Fashion, both real and imagined, was critical to the success of Quantum Leap, and fashion would remain the show's primary tool to differentiate the past from the future, embodied mainly by Al. Al's flamboyant fashion choices were a brilliant counterpoint to Sam's historic mean, and while the metallic fabrics, funky cuts, and garish hues may have started out as a visual gimmick to make the hologram an anachronistic standout in Sam's pedestrian surroundings, they evolved into an abiding character statement for Al. For a man who spent five years in filthy black rags as a POW, Al's colorful clothes proclaim that he remains unbroken, and that he's full of joy and lust and a zest for life. Quantum Leap wasn't the first time Dorliac recreated historical fashions for show creator Don Belisario. They started working together on Belisario's 1930s-era series, Tales of the Gold Monkey, and Dorliac lent his futuristic vision to a parade of genre shows through the 1970s and 80s. Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Auto Man, The Greatest American Hero, Max Headroom, Knight Rider, and the aforementioned Battlestar Galactica, for which he won his first Emmy. And his impressive roster of film work includes another time travel classic, Somewhere in Time, starring the late Christopher Reeve. Dorliac has recounted his storied career in his new memoir, The Naked Truth, an irreverent chronicle of delirious escapades. In it, the costume designer relates never-before-told behind-the-scenes stories about working in theater, couture, television, and film. And in the vein of those never-before-told stories, the Quantum Leap podcast is proud to bring you Jean-Pierre Dorliac's first-ever interview about his work on Quantum Leap. Listen as he recounts his time with Scott Bakula, Dean Stockwell, and the unique challenges presented by Sam's trips through time. 
Along the way, he tells us more about the naked truth and his passion to preserve historic Hollywood fashions. Join us as we take this culturistic leap. Here's Albie's conversation with Jean-Pierre Dorliac. Thank you so much, Mr. Dorliac. It is an honor to talk to you, and I uh, appreciate you being on the show. Uh, hi, Albie. I'm really thrilled to be on the show. Quantum Leap, by far, is probably the, one of the most favorite uh, series I ever did. And you did an amazing job on it. I'm really enjoying The Naked Truth right now. Is there any specific reason you sat down and spent five years writing it? Well, Albie, I've lived all over the world. I've lived in France and Spain and Portugal and England and South America and in Brazil and in Uruguay and in Japan. And I collected a lot of things over my life, and um, I'm trying to downsize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have more stuff that you can imagine. And I bought another place a couple of years ago, and I went through these boxes of things that I had kept that would put Andy Warhol to shame. <laughs> <laughs> there were uh, appointment books in which I had used as diaries and actually just recorded lots of conversations I had with people because I thought they were very fascinating and, and told interesting stories just by themselves. And there was telephone books and telegrams and birthday cards and all this stuff. And I looked at it and, and put it all together, sort of chronicled it all by year. And when I got to the end, uh, it told a very interesting story. Unfortunately, it was only 900 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, because I didn't want it to be a vanity piece, which most memoirs are, I took a hatchet to it and cut everything somewhat personal, especially any intimate relationships, and concentrate on just the work. Um, you know, so many movie stars, uh, full films and TV movies I did, and people in events were all cut out, mainly because I had to pare it down. And um, who cares about who did what with whom? Those are such tell all Hollywood books that are ghost written in. I wanted something that the reader could understand what Hollywood was really all about before glamour began to disappear. And I came up with what you read now, and I'm really thrilled uh, that it's become so acclaimed. Uh, you know, it just made the top of Liz Smith's column in the New York Social Diary. And a Ray review from Liz Smith is like a novena from the Pope of Showbiz Register. <laughs> it was something I never, ever anticipated. And it thrills me that the message I was trying to get across through underneath all the escapades was sort of a how-to explanation of how to avoid the pitfalls and the really treacherous journeys of attempting to become successful in show business or the world in general. It's a very fascinating book to me. I love the whole process uh, that you go through on each job and each movie and each TV show. Well, a book like this, Albie, has never been written before about costume design and about show business, especially from someone who came from the background I did because I started out wanting to be a dancer and then an actor and got involved in history and realized I 
can remember more what people wore during periods of time than what actually happened. And I got into costume design, and I have a whole approach to designing costumes that, well, it's almost extinct now because the business has changed so much, and there aren't any very, very few costume designers left who knew the craft as I knew it, and therefore I felt it was something really great to pass on as inspiration for all these terrible kids who go through such, you know, uncertainty in life and, and, and do such silly things like, you know, put an end to it all. You, yeah. you, this is not, show business is not the yellow brick road to Oz. It's filled with pit holes, uh, uh, potholes, and, and easy ways to trip yourself up and never get anywhere. And like I said, Edith Head, who was my mentor, wrote two wonderful books about uh, costume designing, but they were all very, I did this and I went there and it was wonderful, Ginger Rogers and da-da-da. She really didn't tell anything about how to design clothes at all. And Edith said to me, you should really think someday of putting down what you know because there's very few people left who do. So anyway, there's a, there was a lot of reasons how why the book was written, but those are a couple of them. Um, but like I said, it, more than anything, I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, I loved it. While I was reading it, it almost seemed to me like it would make an amazing movie. <laughs> Maybe just the Lana Turner story, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Parts I found fascinating right away was the whole process uh, that you took the reader through developing the look and fashion for Battlestar Galactica, which I'm a big fan of. Oh, thank you. So I think anybody who likes Battlestar Galactica or other things like Somewhere in Time, which was an amazing film and the clothing in it is amazing. And just to read the stories behind all that stuff, it's worth picking up the book right there, I think. Oh, thank you. Due to lack of space and so forth. I cut out, oh, I don't know, four or five movies that I did and several other TV movies and working with other people because it became repetitious. And the one thing I dislike more than anything else is redundancy. I got a couple chuckles when you were talking about the Chuck Norris movie, uh, Good Guys Wear Black. Yes. That's good. I like that. Oh, that was a, a thank you very much. That's a film that very few people saw. It wasn't... Uh, Anything major, it was challenging in so much as the fact that I got to do Vietnamese clothing, which uh, didn't exist, and I had to recreate it here in L.A., and you would have thought that in 19, what was that, 79, that the war had been over and there would have been more of an immigrant influx and people would have at least imported clothing similar to what they had in Vietnam. But none of that existed. I, it was, uh, strangely enough, the stranger parts of reality and creating fantasy are the more interesting things. But uh, having to really come up with those clothes. And years later, I did a film about uh, Manila in 1945, and I couldn't find anything that was authentic that peasant people wore in Manila at the end, you know, when MacArthur was leaving the island. 
And it all had to be made. The budget was <laughs> minuscule. We made all these special dresses that the women wore despite how rich they were, anything they were, a Marie Claire dress. And uh, they all had puffy sleeves. And we made them out of the cheapest muslin we could find because they were for background and they were supposed to be struggling through the swamp. But it's funny how if you want to be authentic, like I try to be all the time, it's not easy. It really isn't. And most people, especially producers, will fight me over something that I want to make it more authentic. Just in a production meeting, we'll go, oh, Jean-Pierre, who's going to watch this film but you and know it's not authentic? <laughs> and there's nothing I can say except you're an idiot, but uh, why are you teaching people the wrong thing? But that doesn't hold me water. So there you are. I loved reading about the parts where you were going and finding vintage fabrics, and I couldn't believe the prices, but I guess it's because the quality and the rarity, and you just can't reproduce it with modern fabrics and stuff. Oh, no, 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 no. It's the weight and the hand of the silks and silk linens, especially from somewhere in time. And the lace, uh, you have to be very careful because most of all the lace that's made anymore is polyester, and there was no polyester lace in, in 1914. I love that movie growing up, and uh, I would recommend the book just for about somewhere in time because of uh, the stories you tell about certain people in the movie. They're very uh, entertaining. Thank you. It was an interesting experience, and I'd had feedback in regards to it. I think when you write anything that is forthright and well-founded, it brings in all kinds of responses. And I tried to balance all my stories with the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, every beautiful bouquet of roses contains very sharp thorns. And I was criticized by one of the fan clubs for somewhere in time. There's several of them. The book was found that I wasn't kind to Christopher Reed because I called him troublesome. Well, he himself actually admitted to several other people that he was rather full of himself at the time because he had just come off the success of Superman. But he wasn't easy to work with, and he was very strong-willed in what he thought would be best. And it didn't set well with people because he... what. He just wasn't professional enough to know that you have to compromise in this business because it is not a business that, you know, you, no man is an island. And he just really wasn't that way. And it was sad. Uh, and neither was Christopher Plummer. And uh, Christopher Plummer was um, very, very particular, very pompous. And, uh, I, and I turned around years later and worked with him again. <laughs> And this was like after the success of Somewhere in Time. And Christopher Plummer was still disdainful. So that's what I tried to do in the book. Is I tried to also bring people in on the fact that there are so many really wonderful actors. And there's a lot of actors who people think are wonderful, but you wouldn't want to spend 10 minutes with them. If you really <laughs> I think the honesty is really good in the book because it makes you feel like you're really experiencing the journey with you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Somebody said to me that if your name hadn't been on the title just by reading four paragraphs, I know it was written by you because 
you talk exactly the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes me feel very good. Before reading The Naked Truth, I didn't realize that actors were able to approve their costuming. Is that like the norm in Hollywood, or were you doing it out of like a sort of courtesy? I would think the smart actors would just let you handle it all because you know what you're doing. Thank you very much, Abby. So would I. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is not the norm in theater. Theater where good professional people learn and learn how to speak and enunciate and not mumble and not talk fast. And there are a lot of other things that untrained actors who are discovered, especially stand-up comedians on stage, the worst. They have no training at all. There's pigs with their clothes. They throw them around in the dressing room. You know, an actor from stage, you can always tell an actor from stage just by going in the dressing room after a performance. An actor from stage is taught to respect what I do, not what I do, but my wonderful wardrobe crew. That's my key male costume supervisor and key female costume supervisor and the two set dressers they are, plus whoever we hire to dress extras on the day of shooting. And most professional good actors do, but the ones who are not trained don't. And professional actors in theater are told that they have to keep the costumes in good condition because they have to wear them the following night. So they are taught how to hang them up properly with the hanger in the right direction and everything else. No way, Jose, on people who don't have any professionalism. So we come to Hollywood where everybody's picked off the street, and a lot of actors now, because of the change in the industry, which is another reason I wrote the book, because things have changed so much, that when the corporations took over, secondary and background actors were asked to supply their own wardrobe. That means if they do so, SAG, their union, pays them, I don't know, it used to be like $75 to bring in the wardrobe. And production got away with cutting wardrobe budget to a big, big point where that nobody wanted anything made to order anything, anything, unless it was required by a stunt in the show or if it was for a major star and it was in the star's contract in movies and in television. So most everything that wasn't either brought in by an actor today is purchased off a sales rack at a department store, and the wardrobe people schlep in racks and racks of clothes, and because it's gotten to the point where they ask actors to bring things in, The young people, and I'm speaking of anybody who's not over 40, anybody below 40, all have come to the opinion that because they were asked to bring in their clothes, that now they are the fashion pundit for the show, and they have the final say in what they wear, and the designer really doesn't do anything except stay there, sit there and make notes and try to keep balance of color continuity. There's very little other control they have anymore because actors, producers, because they want to please the actors and keep them happy. We're doing a TV series and they have to be happy. I know an actor who's on a major television show. It's usually a hospital show. 
and he demanded in a fitting that he have a Prada belt to wear for this scene. Thank you very much. A Prada belt costs $500. The costume designers kissed his ass, went out and bought a $500 Prada belt, gave it to him. He smiled, put it on, went into the scene with his shirt outside of his pants, <laughs> and you never saw the Prada belt on screen at all. Oh my goodness. So in answer to your question, yes, unfortunately today, actors are the almighty god of fashion as far as they're concerned. Have you seen recent examples lately of someone that got it right that let the fashion designer do their job and make the movie or TV show amazing? Very few times. I, you know, Albie, I'm involved in uh, writing a lot now and traveling and trying to downside stuff and get rid of all these costumes I've collected over the years, especially tons of Quantum Leap costumes that I'm trying to sell. And uh, I, I really work mainly in, oh, couture now. I have clients who pay me to fly in and take care of them for dresses for special occasions. And there's enough to it, and they're such nice people, and they're so appreciative, and it's me, they hire me, and I choose all the stuff, and I make it, and they end up looking fabulous, and they're very grateful, and they get compliments everywhere they go. But I keep a very low profile, and I have nothing to do whatsoever with fashion or television or movies anymore. I mean, Hollywood is a cesspool, and uh, you want to cleanse your soul, you have to get out of there. You mentioned uh, Quantum Leap outfits for sale. Uh, is there a place people can go to get those or anything, or do you, or is that like a one-on-one thing? Well, you know, I'm selling these because they're collectors one of a kind, and most of them all start for like 2500 but I have a lot of wonderful things like all of Scott's things. And when I say costumes, it's not just the shirt and the pants or the jacket. and It's like the belt and the tie and the socks and the shoes, especially all of Al's stuff. We're all put together like that. And Scott's things too. I have stuff from The Last Gunfighter and Catch a Falling Star. I have this whole Man of La Mancha outfit and the single drop of rain that um, I was nominated for an Emmy for. And Southern Comfort about the House of Ill Repute in New Orleans. Mm. My favorite is Good Morning Peoria, the pink and white abstract print short sleeve shirt with pink pants. Mm-hmm. And the double indemnity with a silver tux with the pink ruffle shirt. I love that. That, that was, Scott looked really fabulous in that. And I have his women's outfits from what Price Gloria and Miss Deep South. I, I have like about 10 of Al's outfits complete, like the gold and yellow pinstripe suit and the turquoise print jacket and silk black silk trousers. And then I have a lot of women's guest star things, like uh, stuff that Beverly Leach wore in Seabride and uh, a Brooke Shield stuff from Leaping of the Shrew and Debbie Allen's dress from Private Dancer and Jennifer Aniston from Nowhere to Run. And... A lot of other things, Pool House Blues and A Leap for Lisa and Song for the Soul and One Strobe Over the Line. If if anybody's interested, they can go to my website and there's a contact thing at the back and you can send a a note. It will get to my assistant if 
anybody's interested. I've had some followers from Profiles in History, but I like doing it with people individually, and I'll give them definitely a letter of authenticity so that it'll be worth something to them in the future. Amazing. Your website's jeanpierredurliac.com. Yes. And I noticed you had uh, original sketches of your work there also available for people. Yeah, there's some, there are some sketches from Quantum Leap, too, but I have just been too busy, and I've never released the sketches. There's a few here and there that are out there, but I, I was so busy on the show, and I didn't have an assistant and it was a great undertaking. Don Belisario is probably the most creative producer I ever worked with. And I worked with him on Battlestar Galactica. And I also did spin-offs for Magnum P.I. And, and then years later, I did Airwolf for him. And, uh, and my favorite, of course, Tales of the Gold Monkey, which I had heard. Don was a very tenacious man, and he was very resolute in his decisions and his scripts, and he had the final say in everything. He stuck to his guns. He never wavered, but he always stood behind one, always stood behind me, and he gave me plenty of range to design in, and therefore I had a wonderful time. You cannot have asked for a better actor than Dean Stockwell to work with. I was absolutely overjoyed when I heard he was hired, and I went to have lunch with him in Hollywood and look at clothes, because his character was supposed to be way beyond the cutting edge of fashion for the future. He was a hedonist, and he just wore outrageousness, more or less, to say. And we decided that color was the answer, and I had long discussions with Dean, and the only color he hated was Cerise. And the only color we really couldn't use was green, because he was green screen so often for all the comings and goings into the scenes, which were all green screen special effects. So he was stuck with reds and blacks and silvers and golds and every color of the rainbow that I wanted to use for him, except Cerise. And Dean hated costume fittings. So after the first two or three fittings, when I was certain of his size, because he had not common ordinary sizes, he was of average height, and, but there were various things I had to adjust all the time. But he hated having to go through it on each article, so I got the tailor and we figured it out about sleeve length and shoe length, uh, inseam length and waist and so forth. And we did all these things, and so we had what I call the final fitting, which was like about four months into the first season, in which Dean showed up and stood there grouchy for 25 <laughs> minutes. We made him change into things. And that was the last I saw of him. After that, we used to send make up all the stuff for him, all the shirts and the pants and the suits, because the show became very successful, and they decided that it was far easier for me to actually design Dean's clothes than go out and try to find something that was au courant and then try to fix it even further. That wasted a lot of time and a lot of money, and it generally fell into a great disaster. Dean saw a suit that was coming in color from this great suit maker on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood, 
and everybody was in the magazines wearing suits from this guy. So I went and bought a suit that was close to Dean's size and took it back to the studio and had it altered to fit Dean, and Dean put it on, and it looked like a piece of caca. (laughs) (laughs) And it was put on a hanger and hung in stock and never used because it was wrong. It just didn't look right. It didn't create the ambiance we wanted. It didn't have Dean's character. And Dean was the one who said it, not me. So Dean was a dream to work with. I made everything for Dean and sent it to the set, and Dean would go into his trailer and put it on and come out and do a style show for the set and go, Jean-Pierre made this for me, Jean-Pierre made this for me, and what do you think? So I... I couldn't have been happier. The, the the rest of the show, the leads were absolutely superb. Uh, we had a couple of divas, but nobody that I can remember. I, I was very lucky. And Don got to the point of a relationship with me that when we would have production meetings, he would start the production meetings by turning to me and say, okay, it's all yours because... I had so many questions that had to do with costumes that affected what the rest of the show was going to look like. And that's why I loved Quantum Leap. It was just one great show after another. And they were very, very hard and very difficult to do. And sometimes it it was, you know, 80-hour weeks and no sleep and going home and for lunch, which I because I lived only like 15 minutes from Universal and trying to get some downtime on my own. And right after the morning, I got the script for Seabright, and I came home and took an hour and a half lunch and did all the sketches on my dining room table for Seabright because there were so many that had to be done. You're an amazing artist, too, looking at all your sketches. Is that required in being a costume designer? It should be, but it's not. It's something that I picked up. It's how I got through you know, early years of working for magazines as a sketch artist. And uh, uh, only one other costume designer did that, and that was the great Theodora Van Runkel, who did um, The Godfather and Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. I mean, Theodora was an absolutely fabulous illustrator, just the greatest. It's awesome. Yeah, they're very beautiful sketches. Al's fashion on Quantum Leap over time became like a third main character of the show. Everybody talks about what was Al wearing in that episode, and people remember some episodes by what Al was wearing. <laughs> I've never heard that, and that's very funny because they're sure doing better than I can. As I thought, <laughs> with all of Al's clothes, I have to forewarn people. I don't have outfits that are, maybe the red shirt and the right, the red suit with the white shirt, maybe that's right. But I really just took pieces at the time, and now I'm putting them together as a whole outfit. They were all authentic pieces of Al, but some of them may not have been exactly as they were. It may be a different shirt with a suit than you originally saw, but I can't help it. I just uh, I wasn't doing it at the time. Edith told me years ago that I'm speaking of Edith Head that you better get it in your contract that you own five or six of the costumes because when you go back to look for them in years to come, they won't be there. And I said, what would I go back looking for them for? And she said, oh, you will. They're going to want to see your things. So I started getting stuff in my contract from Battlestar Galactica, uh, five costumes, and I kept them in storage, and then it grew, and then 
Ann Miller gave me a bunch of personal stuff, and then June Lockhart, and then Rodney McDowell, and this collection grew to, well, it's 25,000 pieces. And of that, like I said, I have like over 50 or 60 costumes, full costumes from Quantum Leap. But that's how I got them, because they were part of my contract, and I just don't want to keep them anymore. I've been showing them and so forth, but uh, I think it would be wonderful that I would love it if the fans... And, you know, the Quantum Leap fans have been the best fans of all the things I've ever done, all the movies and all the TV series, even bigger than the Battlestar Galactica fans and the Somewhere in Time fans are big, but the Blue Lagoon fans are wonderful too. That was my favorite film I ever did. Love that movie. And, oh, well. I've seen it uh, so many times. Somewhere in Time was hard because the principles were very, um, well, they weren't easy. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, but I went to Blue Lagoon and Brooke Shields and Christopher Atkins and Leon McKern and William Daniels and Randall Kleiser and Basil Polidorus, the cinematographer. Everybody were just so wonderful. And the Blue Lagoon is like my most favorite project I think I ever did. And it was also surprisingly Columbus mm-hmm. movie's biggest hit for 1981, I believe, in 1980. Anyway. I saw it in a theater, and then I watched it every time it was on HBO for years after. I think it's a good film. Yeah. You know, it was called Child Porn when it came out. But, <laughs> but it's, you know, everybody, oh, Brooke Shields, all she is is naked. Brooke Shields was never naked in the movie. Not once. It was a double. And when you thought you saw something that was Brooke Shields, you weren't seeing Brooke Shields. Believe me, Brick Shields' mother was there, and you didn't show anything. We went through we went through so many boxes of toupee tape on that <laughs> film. There's a scene that I love at the end when she's waiting on the beach and she's in the the white coming jacket and the slip and the sea breezes are blowing and the skirts blowing and the blouses blowing, but her hair that's right over the front of her breast. Doesn't move it in. <laughs> <laughs> to pay tape. It's good stuff. Yeah, I really liked in the book how you talked about your input on the different things that were in the trunk and how they made it throughout the movie. That was a great idea, and I would have never known that was you unless I had read the book. Oh, yeah, well, you know, Serge Wool does not look too good with palm trees. <laughs> Going back to Quantum Leap, I've interviewed a lot of actors from Quantum Leap and co-stars, and they all rave about how great you are, Claudia Christian and Beverly Leach, and so many people, they love what you do, and I think the fans love what you do as well, and there's so many uh, questions I have about Quantum Leap. One that I just, it's a silly question, but when I'm watching Quantum Leap, I notice the nice sharp holes in Al's collars in his shirts. What, what gave you the idea to do that, and how did you do that? Oh, there were holes and triangles and all kinds of things, lattice work in some places, and uh, those are just my ideas. You know, you sit there and you look at a piece of paper and you draw a collar and you go, how can I make this look different and attractive and eye-catching? And I learned a big deal in television after having done so many years of theater beforehand, and also this applies to film, but not as much so is that you really need to capture 
the audience's attention immediately in television in something around the face to establish character because a good more than half of television is close-ups. It's like don't really spend your time too much on the shoes unless you've talked to somebody beforehand and see if they're going to shoot a shot of people walking across the parquet floor. Then you know what the shoes are going to be seen, and you better spend a lot of time making certain that you're using authentic shoes of the period. But on other things, you learn to move on to other things. So all of Al's collars on his shirts and his lapels, and it was all cutout work, it's called, and uh, it's something that was done an awful lot by designers way back in the mid-30s for women's clothes. And I just thought it was interesting and uh, effective, and those crazy ties that were all looked mm. like they were rat-eaten because they had uh, <laughs> holes and, you know, craters missing in them. I just thought they were fun. And Al was supposed to be fun. He was, like I said, he was hedonistic. He was a skirt chaser and fooled around. But he he had to behave that way so that it was a contrast to his character that he was so capable of everything else he was doing. On the other side of that, he had really nice uniforms when he dressed up. Did you create those or were those found? Yeah, well, that was a contrast to, uh, to make his character. That's why I have very, very wonderful costume supervisors, David Raleigh and Donna Roberts, who was on the show for years. David was, well, phenomenal. I, uh, because I had to spend so much time with Scott's clothes and Dean's clothes, and especially the women's guest stars, David made it real easy for me. He would pull uniforms in advance and show them to me, and I'd go, oh, God, that's gorgeous. And so I didn't have to do all that. I had help. Like I said, you have to give credit to where it's due. And David Raleigh was my right arm and my right leg at times for Quantum Leap. It's good you had help with it because it would seem like an overwhelming task. There were many years that were often repeated in Quantum Leap that took place in different locales requiring different looks. A different look every single time, right? How did you accomplish that? Did you keep track of it in your head or... Yeah, I did, and I wrote down on papers, and but I remembered. Part of my speciality is that I have such a background in history. There's a very funny story that I went to in for an interview on Heart and Souls that I ended up doing, and the unit production manager, who never knew me and never worked with me, and they're usually a big stick in the mud. Heart and Souls, if you have ever seen the movie... It's part 1950, early 50s, and then it jumps to present when Mm -hmm. the little boy grows up and becomes Robert Downing. Because he'd never worked with me, they wanted somebody who was very good with the 50s. And I knew I was exactly perfect. I was sitting in his office, and he had some pictures behind him on the mantle behind his desk. And uh, I would talk to him in the middle of, I sort of, kind of stand up and wander around. I don't like to sit down. And I watched over this picture and I said, God, what job was this for in 1973? And he looked at me and he said, how, how did you know that that was in 1973? I said, that's really easy. I could tell by the collar on your shirt and the buttons and how your hair length was and so forth. 
And he says, you're right, exactly. That's when it was taken. I said, ah, that's, that's a real easy one. He said, I've never had anybody do that before. I said, well, that's what I do. <laughs> what I don't know, and I'm trying to be modest about this, is what I don't know about costumes for the 20th century especially. It wouldn't even fill a page. I know so much about the 50s and what changed and what colors were popular and what year. And 1954 chartreuse and orange and avocado green were big time. I mean, those, and, and in 1957, pink and gray was really the popular thing that everybody wanted to wear. Those are very important things in costume designing, especially for me because I love to design subliminally. I love to use color in such a way that it requires people to immediately think of something. When you get somebody in red, it's energy immediately. And I try to really stay away from red unless the scene calls for it. It seems like pool house blues, I only use certain colors in that, and there's no other bright colors in the movie. It's just like oranges and browns and pinks and whites and creams and very little black at all. Pool House Blues is another one of my very favorite episodes. I love that dress you put on, Sherry Headley. The pink flamme or the white when she sang in. She sang in a white cocktail dress that was beaded with a flounce at the side. It wasn't that white, one. it was cream. Cream. It make, makes her look amazing. And uh, we talked about that in her interview, and she just raved about your ability to make her look beautiful. She was a wonderful actress to work with, just the best. That was a wonderful show. All of the actors on that, the, I can't remember his name, who played the older man who was the assistant. He was just one of the most brilliant actors, so professional. You know, people don't seem to realize that acting is not just stepping in front of the camera and saying your lines. Many times for technical reasons or because the delivery wasn't right or something, you have to do two or three takes on things. And a lot of unprofessional actors become very temperamental that I already did that and I don't want to do it again. The true ones are the ones who can do the same take, almost identical, but change it every single time with just a tiny inflection that makes it fresher than the time before. Unless you know about acting in front of a camera, the audience has absolutely no idea what it takes to really be a good actor actress. Jean Simmons was that way. She was so brilliant in front of the camera. And I could see her go from sitting in the chair talking to me and telling me dirty jokes and being funny and giggly little girl and go to the camera and sit on the camera and her eyes changed and she became the most evil bitch you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and it wasn't anything she did or anything. It was just her ability to do that. Diane Keaton has that, and so does Stocker Channing, and so did Roddy McDowell. It's, a, it's something that you... Dean had that. Henry Fonda and June Lockhart, Patricia Neal. There's some actors who are just brilliant and there's other actors who are waste of time so <laughs> one of my favorite episodes of quantum leap just because of the outfits i think would be the captain galaxy episode future boy oh. yes that was a very fun episode 
Could you tell me about the uh, silver costumes that they wore on the TV show inside the TV show? Well, you're not old enough to remember the 50s, the first sci-fi TV series they had. But in the 50s, in black and white television, they used to have afternoon shows that were like half an hour, and they were called Captain Somebody. And what it really was 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 a format for them to show serials that they used to use on matinees at the theater. In the 40s and the early 50s, when you went to the kids' matinees especially, they always used to show an episode of a serial before the movie started. You, you usually got the news, which was five minutes of film, because, black and white film, about what's happening all over the world. And then you got the episode they only showed at the matinees. And it was usually something from, like, Flash Gordon. Hmm. Flash Gordon was my favorite. I always loved the Flash Gordon serials. So when they weren't showing them on the movies anymore, they moved them to an afternoon TV when TV became very popular. And so they used to have this format of a kid show was hosted by some guy in a stupid outfit that looked like it was made out of aluminum foil. <laughs> and he was a space ranger, something like that. And he would have somebody in, they would have this mock-up spaceship. Uh, they would sit there and they would say such silly things. They're like, well... We're going to show you the serial first before we land on Mars or something like that. So they would show these things. So when we did Captain Galaxy, of course it was a 50, so it had to look like it was, you know, uh, it looked like had to look like a roast potato wrapped <laughs> in aluminum foil. And that's exactly what I, I found fabric to do that with. And I don't have the whole costume. I wish I did. But I have Future Boy's helmet, which with the with the oh, funny wow. little spirals on the side. Yeah, and I'm willing to get rid of that too. So. Oh wow! Uh, I'm sure there's a hundred people who want who want that right now listening, including me. <laughs> Speaking of different costumes like that, how would someone go about recreating some of the iconic looks of Quantum Leap if they wanted to cosplay something Quantum Leap at a convention? Oh, you'd have to watch the movie and uh, or get one of the the CDs and, you know, play it over and over again and copy the The fabrics are all gone. You have to understand that's mm. almost, what, 30 years now? I don't know. It's a long time ago. And a lot of the stuff that I used was fabric that I found that was already, you know, 40 years old. And wow. I used, uh, I went to a lot of old vintage stores in Hollywood that had been here since the beginning of Hollywood. And they were big places. They used to have lots of old fabric and stuff that, you know, that wasn't bought over the years. And it was for sale. And it was stuck in the back. And you had to paw through it and everything. And there were two or three places. I was so thrilled. I told this story in my book about trying to find wool for Christopher Reeve and the color that I wanted. I wanted it to be that uh, sepia color brown because it would immediately make people think of times past when all photographs were in sepia. And I wanted that color so badly on him. And I found it with this wonderful dark moss green pinstripe in it. And there was enough yardage. And it was in this old place way downtown Los Angeles in the back and in the back of the back of this old place. And I finally found this stuff and I found asked him to put it on hold for me. And 
That's why, I wish I had explained it, that's why my whole confrontation with Christopher Reeve about the Wolfer's suit was so important at the time. I had to get him to go for that, whether he knew it or not, and he didn't know it. I did it very, very surreptitiously. I used Edith's head's advice about, you know, just show them the best last, making them think it's third choice. And just because of their spite and their vanity, actors will always go for something. I don't know why what you said is not true. This is my job. I have no reason to want to make anybody look bad. <laughs> my name would be on it. Actors are so strange, so, so, so strange. And I was one of them, and yet, I don't know. I, I, I think it's this industry that attracts so many really unstable people. It's, it's, not, it's lost what it used to be. Acting was a profession, and it was something you did with dignity. And now, it's all show. It's all go out there. It's like a hoochie-coochie dancer in the sideways at a circus from the 30s. And the more I can show and cut it down to here and let them see everything, the more important I am. And it has nothing to do about integrity or honesty or virtue or anything anymore. It's all just about getting out there and letting them know I'm here. And it's so sad because I see so many people out there now who have zero talent and... um and they sure don't last long. I have one question to ask. Whatever happened to Paris Hilton, who was in the news for every single second four years ago? You don't even hear about her anymore. And that's exactly true of how most celebrities last any longer. In truth, an actor has a shelf life of seven years at best, unless you're really, really, really good and can go on. And that requires talent. It doesn't require... A big set of puppies on your chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that trick you just were talking about, and I think uh, you can apply that to so many different situations and careers. So that was a good takeaway from the book about how to uh, get someone to pick something that you want. Well, you, it's subterfuge, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's dishonest. It's just learning how to work with people. Mm. Could you tell me about elevator shows? Oh, elevator shows. <laughs> Elevator shows is the name we use for shows that after you've spent all your money on a huge budget show like Miss Deep South, so with all, there were thousands and thousands of costumes, and they all had to be made. And Scott was a woman again, and every time he was a woman, they required making. But elevator shows are shows that we did where everybody is... They're, they're named elevator shows because... It's like a show about where everybody's stuck in an elevator for half an hour. <laughs> there's no change of clothes. There's no change of set. <laughs> there's very little action. There's no stunts. And we did shows, which we called elevator shows, like the Bermuda Triangle show, where they were in an airplane for the whole show. Right. I remember that because I was so thrilled. <laughs> I was so worn out. We did four or five of those. Um, I don't remember all of them anymore. You know, Albie, I was uh, universal after all these years. Somebody was kind enough to send me a set of, uh, of Quantum Leap on, on CDs. And I'd have them, and I'd watch the shows, and uh, I'd watch them, and I'd go, God, I don't remember doing this. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I don't, was he in our show? My God, <laughs> I didn't know he was in the show. I worked with him. They were <laughs> so I run into a lot of people by watching the show again that I worked with thereafter and never remembered that they were in Quantum Leap. Wow. Yeah, that's a good way to catch your breath and for them to catch up the budget. It could be overwhelming at times, I'm, I'm assuming, because that was a huge period piece, and every week was a different time. Yeah, but um, it was fun. I liked the fact that it wasn't ever, you know, we never did 1957 in Los Angeles twice, or if it did, it wasn't in, once it would might be at the beach and then it may be at the Biltmore Hotel. I mean, there was a definite contrast in what the style of the look was going to be. The only person who repeated their clothes in the show was Al. Uh, Scott never repeated a single thing he wore. Even if we went back to the year and we had made a jacket for 1954, we did a lot of his stuff for that uh, show we did called Goodnight, Dear Heart. We did a lot of his clothes for that, but they never got used again. And they were really, really very authentic-looking clothes of the era and of the location because it was like somewhere... I remember correctly, Upper New York or something in the Rondacks. Or, and we did a lot of clothes like that. And I basically wanted clothes that looked like they came from Sears and Roebuck at the time, all in fall colors. I remember that. But we never used any of those period clothes ever again on the show. Al seemed to have his own sense of style, and so did Sam, I think, even though he was leaping into other people. Did they each have a unique sense of style, and what was your inspiration for each of the two main characters' style? Well, it was all in the script, whatever they wanted. Scott's costumes had to reflect the character that he was taking the place of. So it all came from the character that they wanted established. We would sit and talk about what we could use that would be right for this. And I talked with Bernie, who was the art director. We would talk about things at the production meeting, about colors and so forth. Uh, You know, it all is in the script. And then it's just left to my imagination. And that's what I said, working with Don was very good because I didn't have to open a door every time I made a decision about something. I would simply tell Don at the production, he's going to wear this, he's going to wear that, and it's going to be that. And Don had enough faith in me that it was very easy for me, and um, I didn't have hardly any problems at all, especially with the costumes. Uh, I had one incident that I remember about Don being stubborn, but we did that episode of Al actually being the time traveler, and he comes back to his hometown in some small suburb in 1945 after World War II, and he's in uniform, and he's walking down the street, and there is this blonde girl walking down the street, and, um, of course, because he is a skirt chaser and always after uh, somebody, they wanted her to be alluring, and they said that they wanted her in a sweater and a pair of shorts. Well, that kind of... Um, an odd combination because a sweater is a winter <laughs> object and shorts are summer objects. So I found a synthetic cotton sweater at the time in coral and a pair of absolutely wonderful red shorts from 1945 that looked like Betty Grable and put her in some platform shoes that were at the time st- 
still and all, it was really pushing the bar because women in 1945 in small towns would never have looked like that walking down the street. That was like, I'm very sorry, but uh, you had to be a strumpet to look like mm-hmm. that. Uh, especially if you were blonde and young, you would have been in a dirndl skirt and you would have had a, a sweater over your sweater and not show. And they wanted her, of course, to have really knockout bazooms. So we got her all dressed and she looked wonderful. She was like Betty Grable. And, uh, and I kept thinking, oh, no. once again, who's going to know? You're the only one who knows. It's <laughs> really anachronistic for the whole scene. So she went on the set and, Don said, stop it. I don't like the shorts. They're not short enough. And I said, Don, that's the style. That's the length of the time. I mean, as it is, she'd probably be stoned out of town by the church looking the way she does. I don't care. Cut them shorter. And he made me took scissors right there on the set and cut off these very expensive, one-of-a-kind, antique 1945 shorts because he wanted them to be what he wanted them to be. And you know what? It was his money. It was his show. I was getting paid. And if he wanted it, I would have made them into a bikini bottom. <laughs> they were short shorts. I do remember that. The leap back. Oh. Yeah. Definitely uh, had good visuals. The women were always beautiful in Quantum Leap. And Scott Bakula was beautiful sometimes, too, wearing <laughs> women's clothing. Uh, <laughs> did you ever run into any problems with trying to find... Yes, of course, his shoes. <laughs> shoes and dresses the yeah. size? And... No, well, of dresses, of course, it, there were no dresses. We didn't buy anything. Everything was made. And I designed them to make him look as of a woman's silhouette as much as possible with the darts in the right places. Or The biggest problem we had was his shoe size, of course. I think Scott, in real life, was like a size 11, 10 and a half, 11. And so in women's size, I would have been like a 13 and a half, and there was none. And so we had to have shoes made. We had, I remember for what price, Gloria, that he had a black cocktail dress with roses on it, and he had a, we had a pair of black patent leather shoes made for him, which I still have because I have that outfit. And he also had a red pair made for something else, and he had a beige pair made, and and then we turned around and we used them again on Miss Deep South because he was in a pool bathing suit pageant and he had to have heels. <laughs> so I purposely put him in a red bathing suit so I could use the red heels again. I mean, it was those kind of things that we did occasionally. But uh, the shoes for Scott as a woman were absolutely ridiculous. And they looked like a rowboat. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever use any kind of padding to make him look more feminine no. at all? No, remember, he never wore a wig as a woman and he never wore padding because he was taking the place of the person that was there. But for example, if he was doing a man who had a tattoo, he didn't have a tattoo. And, he, and because the woman he was replacing didn't wear padding, he didn't wear padding. And because she didn't wear a wig, he never wore a wig. If in the story, like in when he played one of the three singers, like The Temptations, remember that? A song for the soul, I want to say? Yes, that's what it is. He went on stage in the three-sequin dress with two of the other girls at the end, and he had on a black wig. 
was the only time in the whole series as a woman he wore a wig, and the reason behind it was that the actual three girls in the group wore wigs when they performed. Hmm. I like how you had rules and you stuck to them. The only other time I can think of is when he was a man dressed as a woman in MIA. Yes, that's right, because he was in drag, too, and he had on that cheesy outfit that yeah. I put in <laughs> was that hard? Did you? Was that ever hard to do something cheesy on purpose? Oh, it, <laughs> not if you just go shopping in Hollywood. So <laughs> 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 uh, I remember the Lurex red shirt he wore as the woman. I think I went to Fredericks in Hollywood and I saw them in two huge sizes, and they were still too small for Scott, so I bought two of them, and we recut them and made them into one because I liked the fabric so much, mm. and it was just god-awful. <laughs> Did he prefer heels or flats? Scott never had. Uh, Scott was very cooperative in those things. He was, um, Scott was, is a very, very talented person. I mean, he did all of his own singing and uh, dancing and everything, and he and Dean got worked together very, very well. It was a great combination. There was no ego involved in that, and the only trouble I ever had with Scott was when he played a monkey, and he didn't like the <laughs> the uh, diaper, but, you know... <laughs> I said, listen, Scott, it's either that or it's your bare ass out there, so you better get to like it. <laughs> That's funny. Finally, could you tell me some of your favorite creations from Quantum Leap and just tell me a little bit about them and why you love them so much? And I'm sure all of us fans have our favorites, but what are some of your favorites? Oh, I think I've already mentioned most of them. As far as Scott's looks, I like the double indemnity costume that he wore. That was really one of my favorites. There's a lot about that episode that I like. I like the girl who was in that. She was a great actress. And I love the little dress that I did for her in the scene where she bends over and shows her panties. That whole <laughs> dress was designed around just to do that stunt. It was in the script. Mm. And uh, it had to be rigged with wire so that when she bent over, it would rise up in the back and you could see her panties and garter belt. It was all part of the script, and uh, and she was uh, so wonderful. I wish I could remember her name. And the older Italian lady in that episode is Harriet Medine, who was one of my closest friends. She had been in A Doll's House that I had won my second Drama Critics Award for. Plus, she was Anita Eckbird's secretary in La Dolce Vita, which is probably one of my most favorite movies. And she worked with Fellini, and she spoke fluent Italian. And when they said they needed a little Italian grandmother who could rattle off an Italian, I said, <laughs> I know just the person, and they hired Harriet. And I was thrilled. I got to work with Harriet once again thereafter and, and another movie. I love working with a lot of the actors over and over again when they're really wonderful people. I like Beverly Leach and uh, and Sherry Headley and uh, oh, John McCullum. And I can't tell you how many wonderful actors they came and went on Quantum Leap. And as far as the women's costumes go, um, play it against Seymour. The stuff that Claudia Christian wore was wonderful and Everything for Beverly Leach and Seabride I loved, and 
and I loved everything in Pool House Blues. There are other episodes, but those are the ones that stick out the most in my imagination. I liked the one that was um, about uh, the rock stars, the glitter rock that uh, yeah. that I was nominated for another Emmy for. And I also liked uh, A Single Drop of Rain because it was a chance for me to do really, really ethnic, rural, late 40s clothes with Sam looking like a, a carnival barker in that brilliant brocade vest he wore. I love the contrast in that show very, very much. Were you responsible for the different brooches and things that Al would wear? Oh, yeah, everything. Yeah, I have boxes of those. Really? Boxes of those. Uh, wow. uh, most all of his friends. I d- actually designed a lot of them. I would get in touch with designers and say, give me something like this and this. One of the ones I designed that I really loved the best was the um, domino tie that had the dots in it mm. and then it had a red thing at the top of it. I still have that. It's one of my very favorite bolo ties and there was a pin that matched it too. And then there was a pin that we designed that had a um, that had a bone in it that there was all oh. kinds of silly references made as to why he was wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> we did we did a lot of silly things for silly reasons that were Nobody ever knew anything about uh, that I would do with Dean, and we would, I would tell him little stories about why I did it, and he loved it. Uh, we all loved the silliness of the stuff I put together. Everything on the show was eventually my final decision. The jewelry and all the women and the hats and the gloves and the shoes, everything. It just wasn't doing a dress. I, a costume designer creates the character. That's what our job is, is to let the audience know who the person is actually before they even open their mouth on screen. I know where most of his pins are. I have a box of those. I ran across them the other day when I was sorting through another storeroom of stuff that I have. And um, Is it crazy that I got excited to know that you still have that? <laughs> oh, uh, I'm I'm thrilled that uh, there are people out there who still would be interested in this stuff because, like I said, I'd like to see it go to a nice home where somebody would take care of it and not just wear it around for Halloween. So. That's what happens. That's what Edith told me about my costumes because I sure enough started getting requests to do displays of the clothes, and I went back to Universal when... Somebody was putting together a display at the Academy, Television Academy, about wedding dresses and televisions. And I, they asked me if I would show the wedding dress from Seabride. And I was thrilled. It, but it wasn't, didn't belong to me. It was in stock at Universal. And when I built the dress, it was built on a pannier, which is different than a hoop skirt. A pannier is flat on the front and back and then sticks out at the sides. It's what the under foundations that Marie Antoinette wore during that period. So the dress was flat in front and flat in back, and it had these poofs at the side, very reminiscent of the uh, 18th century. I did it specifically because Dior had done something in that year that I saw in a Vogue magazine that I had in research. And I wanted to do something extravagant aboard the ship, and she had to get in and out of a cupboard, in the dress, in the storyline. And I wanted to make it as funny as possible. So I did this dress 
built on one of the panniers I had made for the bastard and the rebels. And Beverly loved it, and she looked fabulous in it, and it was stunning on screen, and everybody laughed her butts off in Bailey's when she tried to get in and out of the closet with this huge dress on. So I went back to Universal years later to get the dress for this display, and I went and pulled it from stock, which it had been hanging and used by other designers for other things like commercials or backgrounds and movies and so forth. And I went to put this on the form with a pannier, and some moron had taken the dress and cut it, not knowing it was built for a pannier because they didn't know anything and thought it was built for a hoop skirt. So that now it all hung down when you put it on a hoop skirt with big pooches on the side, or when you put it on the, the pannier, it smiled at you. It was all short on both sides. The dress mm. was totally ruined. There was no way of ever reconstructing it. It would cost a fortune. They didn't weren't smart enough to alter it and pin the sides up underneath. No, they took scissors and cut it off. So this is what Edith's advice was about keeping your costumes. It was the smartest thing uh, she ever told me because had I not done so, there would be absolutely nothing left from Quantum Leap because I know what's at Universal now. I'm glad that it still exists and somebody who actually cares about it still has it. Well, tell your fans and all the dear people who have written me letters for years and years. You know, I get more notes and reminiscence from Quantum Leap fans than anybody else, but if they're interested, they can write me notes at my website, and I'll be more than happy to write them back and tell them if they're looking for things. Awesome. And I can't thank you enough for inviting me onto your show. This has been a thrill for me to talk about the show. I haven't spoken to anybody ever about Quantum Leap since I did the fashion show that so many people showed up to at Universal. And I decided, you know... If you don't retain things and you just keep giving away bits of information here and there, there'll be nothing at the end to talk about. And Marlene Dietrich told me never to serve the dessert first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, people can get a signed copy of your book at jeanpierredorliac.com, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can order it there too. Yeah. Or at Amazon.com. But uh, they don't have... Uh, I, I, I'll personalize a copy if they order it through the website. Oh, amazing. I'm going to do that for my friend. I'm going to order one for him. I know he would love this book. Oh, thank you very much, Abby. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. I, it's really been a blessing. Uh, it really has. So thank you very much, and I hope you have a, a great uh, evening. 